After the opening narratives of the book of Daniel, where they are brought into Nebuchadnezzar's court, they refuse to eat his delicacies, and then when you see Nebuchadnezzar's efforts to destroy the wise men, in chapter 2, verse 25, we enter into the first prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. And this is really the meat of the book of Daniel. I don't want to minimize the stories even a little bit because the stories are equally important to us. But these prophetic passages are, are really what makes the book of Daniel so special and why it puzzles and fascinates so many people. And this is why a lot of you, and maybe even most of you, were excited to get into the book of Daniel. Because you were hoping we could get in and talk about some end times prophecy stuff. I want to talk about the, the visions and the kingdoms and the Antichrist. And we're going to do that. And today's prophecy, the opening dream that we interpret, is fairly straightforward. Daniel interprets most of it for us and tells us what it is. And, and, and the broad lesson of it is painfully obvious, which is good. So we're going to take this as an opportunity, not just to dissect this prophecy, but to examine our entire method of approaching prophetic study as a whole. And I know that sounds less interesting, but it is absolutely necessary. We've got to know how we study these things. And at the end, we're going to look at what our response ought to be as we study these things. Because, as so many of you know, so much eschatology, so much end times Bible study is really wacky. You've seen these books before. You've been to like, you know, Kmart or something and sifting through and somebody's got a book like unlocking the 15 secrets of revelation that the church wants to keep secret from you or whatever. And there's a million podcasts and there's a million YouTube channels. And it seems like those that are the least qualified to discuss Bible theology love to talk about prophecy for some reason. And it's based on wild speculation. It has a lot more to do with politics than it does with the scripture. Haven't you found that to be true? And a lot of it is based on just this sloppy exegesis, sloppy Bible study. That's one, one side. On the other side, you've got people that are so cynical about understanding these prophecies that they don't want to talk about them at all. Anybody ever been told the book of Revelation is too complicated? Don't bother with it. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard pastors say, I won't teach through Revelation because I don't get it. Well, I, I have to learn how to get it if I'm going to be a pastor, in my opinion. And it becomes decidedly unhelpful. And what they will do is they'll approach these prophecies, but they won't address any of the symbols, any of the details. They'll just say, the gist of this lesson is blank. Now, you don't want to lose the gist of the message. You have to get that. But the Lord gave us these things for a reason. So you've got two poles that we want to avoid. We want to avoid the wacky stuff, and we want to avoid the, the cynical and unhelpful stuff. I'm excited to study Bible prophecy. I remember when I was first introduced to this as a kid and began to study, and, and the Left Behind books were very popular at that time, so I started to get into that as a kid. I had so much fun. I'm like, God tells us what's going to happen at the end of the world. I know how the world is going to end. That's a pretty cool thing. So we are excited about Bible prophecy here at the church. We did a conference on it last year, if you remember. Actually, that was this year. Wow, how about that? Seems like it's just been forever, but it hasn't, I guess. But because we are excited about Bible prophecy, we're going to be restrained in the best sense of that word as we approach it. We're going to be careful in our Bible study, and we're going to take it seriously. And there's plenty of fun to be had when you do it that way, and you don't have to wonder if you might be going off the rails. So today we're going to do two important things. We're going to look at the foundational principles for how we study prophecy. We're going to look at the proper response that a Christian ought to have to studying prophecy. And in the middle, we're going to actually do some of it. And we've got some fun that we're going to get into right away uh, with this interpretation. So let's begin by reading verses 25 down to verse 30. Then Arioch, you remember Arioch is the captain of the guard in Babylon. Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wanted to know its interpretation, but he did not really trust these wise men. So he said, you tell me what the dream was, and then you tell me what it means. And they, of course, couldn't do that. So he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. But Daniel asked for time from Arioch and from the king to seek the Lord and see if God wouldn't show it to him. And God did. So when he goes back to Arioch and tells him, the Lord has revealed to me the dream and I know its interpretation, it says that Arioch in haste brought Daniel. Why in haste? Because Nebuchadnezzar very well may have been executing wise men at this time. It seems like Daniel was able to save most or all of them, but that Nebuchadnezzar is not a guy who likes to wait very long. So Arioch brought him in very quickly. And Nebuchadnezzar is skeptical. And if you read the Aramaic there in, in verse 26, you might read it, are you really able to make known to me the dream and its interpretation? He's like, no fooling around. Are we serious here? Or are you just trying to make something up like all these other guys are? But Daniel reassures him. He says, no, I can't tell you anything. And that might have actually reassured Nebuchadnezzar a little bit. When somebody admits their own shortcomings and their own limitation, you go, okay, at least we're having an honest conversation. But he says, but there is a God in heaven who can reveal these things. And we don't have time to go into the parallels to this. Do it on your own time. But Genesis 41, when Joseph appears before Pharaoh, is a very, very similar story. He's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's had dreams. He said, can you make known to me the dream? Joseph said, I can't. But my God can. And this is what we talked about last time. And we, we had a little fun poking at different groups and stuff. But the lesson that we need to get from this, in things of the Spirit, men and gods, with little g, are out of their depth. There is no qualification you can have in the flesh that will make you more able to understand the mysteries of God. Those things are only revealed by the Holy Spirit. It is the Lord who reveals mysteries. And that's exactly what we have here. The revelation of a mystery, he says, concerning the latter days. You might want to underline that because latter days is usually an indicator that we are discussing something that will happen at the end of the world. Now, not always. You've got to read the context carefully. It can just mean after this. And in fact, the prophecy we're going to read this morning is both of these things. It describes what's going to happen in the immediate future, but also in the ultimate future. But most of the time in the Bible, when you see phrases like in that day or in the last days, it's talking about the end of the world, which is where we get the term eschatology, by the way. This is the, the study of Bible prophecy is eschatology. The Greek word eschatos means last. So eschatology means study of last things. So when you hear eschatology, I've said this before, you need to think the end of the world, which makes this a very exciting Bible study in my opinion. Now, when we come to study eschatology, when we come to, to get into these things that Daniel is going to get into, he points out a few very important things for us that we're going to look at three principles that have to govern your methodology as you study eschatology. As you look at end times prophecy, you cannot just run in half cocked and try to do this. These are three, I think, pretty simple and I think pretty able to be agreed upon by all of us. But let's still look at these that, that govern how we study Bible prophecy. Number one, prophecy is real. Prophecy is real. God has actually revealed the future to his people in his word. We do not just believe that the prophecies of scripture are symbolic or poetic representations of the hope of the prophet. Now, this is what Daniel really wanted to be true. So he wrote this really amazing visual sci-fi kind of vision of the future. 
We don't believe that. Nor do we just believe that this is just what they wanted to happen. Or even that these are just symbolic, heightened descriptions of what God had said in the Old Testament law. We believe that when the Bible says God said something, he actually said that. We believe that when a prophet says he saw something, he actually saw that. So when, Dan, when John says, I was in the spirit and I was caught up and he said, come up here and I saw heaven. We don't believe John is just making this up. We believe he actually saw that. And that is not as common as you might think. That is, in fact, the rising trend in eschatology right now is just to describe these prophecies as heightened visions of the hopes of the people. It's a very postmodern idea that it doesn't really matter if it's real. What matters is that this is what they thought. Their own truth, you might say. But look at what Peter said. The, the gospel writers were much smarter than we give them credit for. They knew about these ideas. And look what Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21. He said, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. How much prophecy? None prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when people say, what we're seeing is this is Daniel's vision of the future. This is Zechariah's thought. This is Jesus' idea. This is the early church. Peter says, that's not what we have. God spoke to people by his Holy Spirit. It's not their own interpretation. Now this might seem so basic, but this totally characterizes how you're going to read Daniel and Revelation. If you believe that the book of Daniel is just the hopes of the exiles put into poetic language, that affects how you read it. You don't need to try and find parallels in history because it doesn't matter if you can find them or not. If the book of Revelation is just the, the hopes and dreams of the early church, then it doesn't really matter what these things represent. But in fact, God holds it up throughout the Bible as a glorious truth that he and he alone is able to know and actualize the future. We see it right here in this passage. God is above the other gods of Babylon because he knows the future and can disclose the future. Isaiah 46.10 says that God can tell the end from the beginning. And we believe that he's done exactly that. So you've got to approach this prophecy believing that this is real. This is a real prediction. Second principle, prophecy is meant to be understood. God intends us to know what he meant when he gave these prophecies. Now, this is a little more controversial, even among evangelical Christians. Yes, they're real, but there's no possible way for us to know what these actually mean. I mean, look at this. It's so difficult to grasp. It's so foggy. It's so impenetrable. I've heard people refer to the book of Revelation as a fever dream. How is anybody supposed to get heads or tails out of this thing? And they mock Christian scholars and students who believe that they can understand these things. How can you even know that? You're making charts. What's wrong with you? And that doesn't come because they believe the ideas are wrong. It's because they believe at the base of all this, you can't know. We'll know when it's over, but we can't know now. I absolutely disagree with that. I believe that we are meant to know and understand. I don't mean, believe that means we're going to know every single detail. I don't believe that means that we're never going to disagree. But I think as you study these things, in large measure, you can know what they mean. Amen. And I, I very rarely have seen anybody point out specific instances where they believe this was out of line. They'll just scoff and say, ridiculous, how can someone believe they know about all of this? Well, it's right there in Scripture. What, what is your interpretation? Look, as long as we know that Jesus is coming back, that's all that matters. Very common thing to hear. God disagrees with that too. In Luke 19, when Jesus arrived on Palm Sunday, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus expected the Jews to know that he was coming and to be able to recognize that it was him because of the Old Testament prophecies. They knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Remember, they asked the scribes. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They were right about that. 
but they missed it. And we're going to see in Daniel 9, he gave an amazingly specific prophecy of what was going to happen, the date of the triumphal entry, and they missed it. God held Israel accountable for not knowing, not recognizing these prophecies. Jesus would chastise his disciples for not getting it as they saw his life. And again, many details remain uncertain, but what we can know is remarkable and specific. And I will say this, because there are there's some Bible teachers that say things like, if they didn't know what the prophecies meant the first time, why do we think we'll know what they mean the second time? Well, I'll tell you this. Some people knew the first time. Remember Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was brought into the temple? Simeon knew that this was the Messiah. And Anna knew that this was the Messiah because it says they were waiting and praying for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting and looking for it and they weren't, they weren't corrupted in their theology by the politics of the day. They were just looking at scripture. And in fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 15, when he mentions the abomination of desolation, he says, let the reader understand. He's like, you need to know what this is. Later on, when, he, when John talks about the number of the beast, 666, he says, this calls for wisdom, meaning I know this is tough, but you need to get this. In John chapter 1, the Lord tells John, I have come that you may know what will happen after this. I have come that you may know, he said. So I believe prophecy is meant to be understood. It's not opaque. It is translucent at times, but it is not opaque. And our third principle, prophecy is to be interpreted literally. What does this mean? Hear me now. I'm using the term literal interpretation because this is what's commonly said. But here's what this means. Prophecy shall be interpreted according to the normal rules of language. Say that again. Prophecy is to be interpreted according to the normal rules of language. There are no secret codes you do not need to send away for the decoder ring to understand the book of Daniel. You do not need to have some hidden book that's been buried in the sands. You certainly don't need any Gnostic gospels or weird pseudepigraphal Jewish mystic writings. Many people are getting really into that now. Be careful of that stuff, okay? We have the word. I love saying this phrase. God could have given us anything. He gave us a book. I do not believe that God gave us a book, but the words, there you have to read the meaning behind the words. No, you interpret them like you'd interpret a normal set of words. Words form sentences, which form paragraphs, which form chapters, which form books, which form a whole canon. You have to take it all that's in, in its entirety, which can take a while, but it needs to be done that way. Now, some people hear literal interpretation of prophecy. So you're telling me you take every one of these things literally? Well, yes and no. Yes, I believe that these things are real, but for example, when you see in Revelation that there is a seven-headed dragon, I don't believe that there will actually be a seven-headed dragon rampaging on the earth. To be clear, I am perfectly prepared to believe that if that is what the Bible says. But he tells us that this dragon represents the kingdoms of the world. So each head represents a literal kingdom that actually existed or will exist. That's literal interpretation. We take symbols into account. We take genre into account. We take all kinds of figurative language and we, we cross-reference it with the entirety of the canon. But there is reality behind these words. We're going to talk about today that there is the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Now I'm not looking for there to be a giant statue to rise up out of the ground. But I believe that the things that statue represented are real. They're not just spiritual realities. I mean, Zechariah 9.9, the prophet said, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus came riding in on a donkey. And if you were to look at that, you might say, Now, I don't believe Messiah necessarily has to come on a donkey. It's a symbol of humility. Okay, but then Jesus actually came in riding on a donkey. The first Advent prophecies were fulfilled literally. The first coming of Jesus, the prophecies were fulfilled literally. He was literally born in Bethlehem. He literally grew up in Nazareth. He literally ministered in Galilee. He literally rode in on a donkey. He literally opened the eyes of the blind. And he was literally born of a virgin. 
In fact, the first Advent prophecies take the broad meaning of Old Testament prophecies and specify them when it comes to Jesus. So we should expect that the second Advent will be fulfilled the same way. Literal interpretation. You don't spiritualize it. You say, well, really, all you've got to know is you've got to get the spiritual lesson behind it. There's something beyond the text. No, no, no. We don't go beyond the text. We go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the text that we can learn. But these three principles provide a solid foundation for studying Bible prophecy. It's real. It's meant to be understood. And we interpret it literally. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to deviate from this. You don't get to say, well, this prophecy is real, but I don't believe this one is. Yeah, you can't do that. Neither can you come in and say, well, this part is is literal, but this part is, is only spiritual. You better have really, really good reasons for saying that if you're going to jump around like that. So as we go through this, we don't spiritualize prophecy, which means we don't look at it and just look for a spiritual meaning. When it says that a man will rise and he will be called the Antichrist and he will conquer the whole world. We don't go, now what could that mean? It means what it says. It means what it says. Nor do we deconstruct prophecies. Now this is what John meant. Now let's look at what John was going through. Now obviously he didn't actually have this vision. So what was he really trying to get at here? We're not going to do that. And can I tell you, these principles will break your heart sometimes. As you study prophecy and your, your, your wings of fancy are like itching to take flight and speculate and come up with some really cool ideas, but the text will hold you down. You have to stay in the word. God gave you words. Study the words. It binds your conclusions to the text. If you're going to spiritualize, it can mean anything. If it doesn't mean what it says, then who decides what it means? The Lord has already decided what he wanted to communicate, so let the words bind your exegesis. So many people, we get all kinds of letters and emails and things from people with very strange prophetic ideas. None of them follow sound Bible study methods. They're all taking certain things and they're spiritualizing them and taking this word and plugging it in over here. They're not sticking to the text which will prevent us, therefore, from speculating and from doing political headlineism. It's a word I made up, headlineism. The church has been doing this for a very long time. Jonathan Edwards believed that the new world that was discovered was the millennial kingdom. America is going to be the millennial kingdom because we just saw the Reformation. Rome has fallen. That was the great beast. And now we're in our new country and we're going to establish a new kingdom. Okay, we look at that and we go, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But you know what? He was being influenced by the events of his day. And we do the same thing. Everything in the news somehow has to get hung on some weird Bible prophecy. Have you noticed that? This is why we don't give like weekly or even monthly prophecy updates. Because what can happen is you start to dig and look for things. And everything that is passionate for you, you think must be predicted somewhere in scripture. That is not the case. But the things the Bible says are very clear and we shouldn't be going beyond them. So if you think that this is going to be a great time for us to rant and rave against this or that political group, sorry, we're going to look at what the words have to say, which is a better way to do it. We don't look to fantastical sources for our theology weird podcasts and weird blogs and strange people that are going off the rails and frothing at the mouth as they talk about it. But we look for solid, proven, faithful men of God who obey what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth. He also tells them that passage not to quarrel over words, which happens an awful lot too. But Daniel is going to do exactly that. He's going to divide the word of truth for Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to do exactly that today as we move on. So we've got our principles, these three things that are going to be true in every prophetic passage we study. It's real. It's meant to be understood. And it's literally interpreted. Let's get to the meat of this passage now. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, or according to the seed of men. They will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure." So here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There was a terrible, shining image that scared him to death. Nebuchadnezzar did not scare easily. Remember, he was a warrior king. But he watched this shining image, was struck by a rock that blew the rest of them away until the rock grew and became a great mountain on the earth. The different metals of the statue each represent a kingdom, and they will all in the end be crushed by the kingdom of God. Here's the main lesson of this. If you're new to this kind of study, it's important for you to hear. One of the big blocks of Bible prophecy, meaning one of the things that we know for sure, although there's difference of interpretation in the details, that the end of the world will be characterized by a worldwide totalitarian government led by a man called the Antichrist. That this kingdom will vanquish and rule over the whole world, and that it will devolve into a cult status. They will begin to worship their king, and they will persecute the Jews, the Christians, and the entire world. That's one of the big blocks. We know that there is an end times kingdom coming, the kingdom of the Antichrist, and that it will be defeated by Jesus. Read Revelation 19. It's a pretty radical passage. So as we look at this, this is very clearly what he's pointing out to us. But he's saying that the, the, each of these metals represents a different kingdom. And that's where the debate on this passage happens. Who are these different kingdoms? Most of them are, are pretty, pretty uh, well established. Nobody really disagrees about them. But some of them have a uh, difference of, of opinion. So those who do not believe in Bible prophecy, who do not believe that Daniel was predicting anything, they say that this was written during the time of the Maccabees, which means they were writing about the destruction of that kingdom, so the iron and clay has to be Greece. And we know that the head of gold is Babylon, so they have to try and find other empires to fit the middle. And they'll back up and say, okay, so if iron is Greece, then bronze would have to be Persia. So what's in between Persia and Babylon? I don't know. So they put the Medes in there. We talk about the Medo-Persian Empire. But here's the problem. The Medes never ruled an empire of their own. They always ruled alongside the Medo-Persians. Now they'll say, well, the writer of Daniel just didn't know his history very well. He thought there were two different kingdoms. But that doesn't work because later on, he's going to twice describe the Medo-Persian Empire as a a dual kingdom with one side stronger than the other. So that doesn't work. There are others who hold to a 
a post-millennial or an amillennial position that really don't care too much about the specific identities of these kingdoms. They see that the rock that comes at the end is just a picture of the church slowly growing until the church establishes God's reign on the earth, and then Jesus will return. But that isn't really how it is described here, is it? Describes a rock smashing into this statue, which is how it always describes the coming of Jesus. That it is sudden, it's violent, it's unexpected, and it catches everyone by surprise. But we're not going to deal with those perspectives so much today. We ourselves hold to what is called a pre-millennial position. That means that we believe that Jesus Christ will return before his thousand-year kingdom, as described in Revelation 20. There's a lot of reasons we believe that, but I think in this passage and in many others, this perspective maintains the sequence of prophetic events. Revelation 19 describes Jesus coming and crushing the kingdom of the Antichrist. Chapter 20 is the establishment of the kingdom. In this chapter, we have all the kingdoms of the world that are crushed in a moment by the kingdom of heaven, which we know, of course, to be led by Jesus Christ. So that is how we're going to interpret this as we go through. And I think as we, as we see this, uh, you'll see that it's the right one. And most prophetic teachers that you've heard of, anybody like Tim LaHaye or Mark Hitchcock or any of those guys, they are premillennial, pre-tribulational guys. Most of the people that do this work are premillennial because they are the only group that believes you can actually interpret this stuff. And that's not a knock against the other groups. They just believe that it's really not important what the details are. It's all going to work out in the end. So let's go ahead and work through this. Daniel says that the golden head of the statue was Babylon. In fact, he says it's Nebuchadnezzar, which makes me wonder, was that Nebuchadnezzar's face on that statue? Is that part of the reason that he was freaking out? Because he saw a statue with his head get smashed into a million pieces? And this is the first kingdom that's discussed. This is the kingdom that was in power at the time. Daniel chapter 7 is going to have a parallel prophecy where it's going to describe each of these kingdoms not as a statue, but as a monster. So that'll be kind of fun, right? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and tell you how that passage explains it so that we get a full picture here. Daniel chapter 7 verse 4 compares the, this kingdom to a lion with eagle's wings, which we even see it on our slides. This was a symbol of Babylon, the lion with eagle's wings. So this is like the one that is undisputed, that the golden head is Babylon because Daniel says it right there. The silver chest and arms represent the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon. We're actually going to read about it in chapter 5, verse 31, that the Persians are going to conquer Babylon, and history tells us they conquered it without a fight. They just marched right in and took over the city of Babylon. Chapter 7, verse 5, represents the second kingdom as a bear with one side raised up higher than the other which describes the union of the Medes and the Persians, how the Persians were ascendant over them, but it was the union of these two kingdoms together. He will actually later on describe the Persian Empire as a ram that had one horn larger than the other, because that's exactly what the Medo-Persian Empire was. It was two kingdoms together, but one of them was absolutely ascendant. So, so much for Daniel not knowing his history. He knew it very, very well. So that's the Medo-Persian Empire. It's not clear exactly how Persia was inferior to Babylon. It certainly was bigger than Babylon, but he says that it's, it's inferior to your kingdom. Uh, it could be that the Persians were very internally uh, divided. They were always having coups. There were kings that were fighting with one another, whereas Babylon had a very stable dynasty from the beginning to the end. But it, uh, we really don't know. We'll just take the Lord's word for it. The next thing, you have the bronze abdomen, the bronze abdomen and thighs representing Greece, the Hellenistic Empire. The, the Greeks call their own country Hellas. We decided to call it Greece for some reason. I couldn't tell you why. But he says that this bronze empire shall rule over all the earth, verse 39. And that is exactly what Alexander the Great did. He conquered the whole known world at the time. He expanded beyond Persia. He had the largest empire the world would ever know until the days of Genghis Khan and Queen Victoria, who ruled over one quarter of the whole globe. And the Bible, Daniel, has an awful lot to say about the Greek empire. We're going to have a whole week or two where we talk about Alexander the Great because he's in here before he was alive, which is pretty cool to study. But that's who that third kingdom is. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, they describe Greece as a leopard 
with four wings and four heads, which is incredibly specific because when Alexander died, the Greek empire was split up into four pieces. There were four different generals that each took a corner of his empire but continued to rule. So four wings, four heads is exactly right. There are some people that say this can't be Greece because they have to have the iron be Greece because that's who they believe the Maccabees defeated, but it just doesn't work. If you take the passage on its own, this is very clearly the Hellenistic or the Greek empire. Then you get to the fourth kingdom, the iron kingdom, the legs, that every time Daniel talks about this kingdom and however, whatever prophetic guys he talks about it, he says that it is a brutal, violent, vicious kingdom. It breaks, it shatters, it crushes. Daniel chapter seven, verse seven, calls it a terrifying and dreadful beast. It does not identify what animal it looked like. It just said it was terrifying and dreadful and that it was different from all the others. There's something specific about this iron kingdom that is worse than everything that came before. Which is why I'm gonna hold off for a few minutes identifying which one it is. Because the identity of this fourth Iron Kingdom is significant. Because the Iron Kingdom leads to the fifth one, which is the feet of iron and clay. That there is a revival of that fourth kingdom into the fifth, and that fifth is the kingdom of the Antichrist. Revelation 17 makes that clear. So whatever the Iron One was, it's going to be part of what the Antichrist brings back. We have to know what this is. And it is, of course, the hardest to identify. And the feet represent a revival of that iron kingdom, a divided kingdom, it says, a mixed multitude. Iron and clay don't mix. And in fact, it makes it very weak. There's another picture there that all the kingdoms of this world are weak at their base and the Lord can take them down anytime he wants to. But this number 10 is very significant to this last iron and clay kingdom. The beast that Daniel sees in seven verse seven has 10 horns. There's another place that's gonna talk about 10 more horns. The, Seven-headed dragon in Revelation has ten crowns upon its head. The iron and clay feet have ten toes. Revelation 17, 12 tells us the final Antichrist kingdom of iron and clay will have ten kings. So that tells us something about that. That this is a union. It says through marriage. It, it can be a little different than just marriage. It's a, it's a union. It's bringing different groups together. Other parts of prophecy tell us it's not going to work. And one of these 10 horns is going to rise up and dominate all the others. And we call him the Antichrist. So you have this iron kingdom and the final kingdom of iron and clay, which will be an outgrowth or a revival of the fourth kingdom. What is it? Well, I'm going to put forth two options for you today. Traditionally, this has been Rome, the Roman Empire. Because, of course, the Roman Empire was the one that destroyed Jerusalem and crucified Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, tells us that the Antichrist will come from the nation that destroys Jerusalem and destroys the sanctuary. It's one of the, one of the most important passages we have about the identity of who the Antichrist will be. We're never given his name. Don't let anybody trick you on that, all right? But it says that he will come from the nation that sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And we go, well, there you go. That's Rome. Revelation 17, 9 references that the woman who rides the beast, so not the kingdom itself, it's a little interesting there, but it refers to seven mountains. Rome was famously the city of seven hills. So was Lynchburg, Virginia, by the way, where I grew up. It's called the seven, the seven hill city. I'm like, do we really want to take that name for ourselves? And not only that, but this has been the interpretation throughout church history. Almost exclusively has the church believed that Rome would be, was the Iron Empire and therefore would be the final empire of iron and clay. If that is the case, we should expect that in the future, a revived Roman Empire will rise and cover the world, that it will be led by 10 kings, that it will go very bad and demand that everybody worship the Antichrist, the, the one horn that will rise up above the others, and that it will be destroyed by the return of Jesus and his kingdom. And the history of Rome is very fascinating to look at. Rome lasted for a long time. Even after Rome was destroyed, Charlemagne brought about the Holy Roman Empire that was around in Germany and, and the surrounding countries at the time. And even today, we look back at Rome as our heritage. We want to maintain that Western idea and all of that. We're kind of keeping the dream of Rome alive even to this day. 
However, so most Bible teachers are, are down with that, almost all of them, all right? And I, there's a lot to be said for that. But let's, let's have some fun. Shall we have some fun? Here is another alternative that I find fascinating. That the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay speak of a revived Islamic empire. If you were at our conference and you went to my workshop, you know what I'm talking about here. You say, how can you say that? Where, where do we see Islam in the Bible? Well, we don't see Islam because Islam antedates Christianity by 600 years. But let's consider this. Rome never conquered Greece. The Greek empire collapsed on its own and Rome arose later. In fact, Greece had already fallen before Rome was an empire. It was a republic at the time. Not only that, but the Greek empire had Hellenized the whole globe, which means Greekified. They were speaking the Greek language, they were wearing the Greek fashions, they were reading the Greek philosophers, and they were worshiping the Greek gods. And Rome did that. Rome adopted the literature and the religion and the fashion and the government of Greece. We even today talk about the Greco-Roman culture. So who conquered who is the point I'm making here. Not only that, I have an image of this. Rome never covered the same territory as Greece, Persia, or Babylon. Let me see a map of the Roman Empire up here. You see this? The red circle is Babylon. Rome was largely a Mediterranean empire. It was huge, but it did not cover the same territory. And I think it is significant that we are not addressing Jerusalem in this passage. We're addressing Babylon. God is telling the king Nebuchadnezzar, which empires are going to succeed your empire? Rome never conquered Babylon. They made one excursion to conquer Babylon. They occupied the ruined city and were driven out immediately by the Parthians and the other people groups that lived there, which led the emperor, I believe it was Trajan, but I could be wrong, to firmly and permanently establish the boundaries of Rome 500 miles west of the Euphrates River. They were so beaten when they tried to take Babylon, they said, all right, we're never going back there. This is far enough for us. Now, let's put up the image of the Islamic Caliphate at its height. The red circle is Babylon. Go back to Rome. Okay, that's Babylon. Now go to the Islamic Empire at its height, the Caliphate. There it is. It's just interesting to think about, isn't it? The Muslim Caliphate not only held Babylon, they still hold Babylon, although there is not a formal Caliphate. Iraq is where Babylon was located. We see this today. Muslims are constantly crying out for the revival of their worldwide empire. That's what ISIS was doing. That's why they rode into battle with the black flags that had the Confession of Islam written upon it. Because they believe that that's what's going to happen when the Mahdi comes to revive their empire. Whether through war, whether through politics. Not only that, but if you study Muslim eschatology, now Islam is a big religion, but there is definitely a broad strain that believes this, their end times prophecies are the exact inversion of Bible end times prophecies. They look at Revelation 3, and by the way, you remember this, Muslims view the Bible as scripture. The New Testament they call the Injil. They don't believe it's inerrant. They believe the Quran is more inspired, but they still study it. They look at Revelation 3 and the depiction of the Antichrist, and they say, that's our Mahdi. This is who we're looking for. They believe that there will be a man who rises up who reconquers the world, who brings with him the prophet Jesus, who will do signs to convince the whole world to go after Islam, who will get rid of the jizya tax and execute countless Jews and Christians. So they are actively looking for a revival of their empire when they dominate the whole world. Consider this also. In Ezekiel 37 and 38, or sorry, 38 and 39, you have the Gog and Magog invasion, which I believe to be a description of Armageddon. All the nations that are listed in that passage are Islamic nations today. Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Turkey, Turkmenistan, Lebanon, Iran. You go, well, I could kind of see that invasion happening today. <laughs> That's interesting too. And here we can get a little, this is, this is less persuasive, but it is very interesting. In verses 41 and 43, when it says, you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided 
kingdom. It shall be iron mixed with the soft clay. And then in verse 43, they will mix with one another. Iron mixed with soft clay because iron does not mix. The Aramaic word for mix is Arab. You might pronounce it Arab. That is where the name of Arabian, of Arabs, came from. They were a mixed multitude, the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Ammon, the sons of Moab, who filled up that area. They did not have one united identity, in fact, until Muhammad came along. That's why they were called the Arab. They were called the mixed multitude. So it is interesting to know that when he describes the kingdom of iron and clay, he uses the Aramaic word Arab like four or five times. It's just interesting to say the least. Now here's the difficulty. Rome sacked Jerusalem. So we know that the Antichrist is going to come from the kingdom that destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the sanctuary. So how can we say that? Well, this, I believe, is the weakest point of this argument. It's not a very popular argument, and this is why. People say, well, how can you say that? Well, here's the answer that they give. Josephus, do you all know who Josephus was? Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived around the time of Christ, and he wrote histories of the Jewish nation for a Roman audience. And so it's very valuable history. He also mentions Jesus and the Christians several times. It's one of the best ways we have external collaboration of, or corroboration that Jesus was a real person. Josephus wrote that when the sanctuary and the city were destroyed, it was not Rome's fault. This is just what Josephus said. He said that General Titus sent the legions to Jerusalem to subdue them and very specifically told them, do not sack the city and especially do not destroy the temple. Well, then why do they do it anyway? Well, because Rome filled their legions with conscripts from all over the world. There were not enough soldiers in Italy to conquer the whole world. So when they went around the world, they would draft people into their army. They would conscript them. And we know this to be a fact. Most of the soldiers that Rome conscripted to rule over Judea were Syrian. They were of Arab ethnicity. That's just history. We know that to be true. And what Josephus said happened is that when they were given permission to attack Jerusalem, even though Rome told them to take it easy, their hatred for the Jews was so strong, they went beyond what Rome told them to do and sacked the city. They destroyed the temple, even though that's not what Rome wanted to do. That tells us at least one historian from that time did not blame Rome. They blamed what we would call the Arabs today. That's a weak point, I think, because it's hard to, hard to deny the fact that Rome was at least the ones who name on the uniform, if you understand what I'm saying. But let's look at one more thing. In Revelation chapter 17, I've referenced it several times, John gets a vision of a seven-headed dragon that he says each head represents a kingdom that has ruled over the world. I'll read this passage to you. The angel tells him, these are seven kings, five of whom who have fallen, one is... The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, which is the Antichrist, who was and is not, he is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So work with me on this now, okay? We have a seven-headed dragon. Five are empires that have already fallen. This part is undisputed. That's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, because that passage is talking about specifically kingdoms that have oppressed Jerusalem, as opposed to this one here in Daniel. So Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. He says one is, meaning one is alive right now. Who was the empire while John was writing? Rome. So that's number six. He says the seventh has not yet come. And he says the Antichrist will belong to the seven, meaning he will come out of the seventh empire. That's also undisputed. But if the Antichrist empire is part of the seventh empire, then do we have three Romes in a row? We have Rome and then Rome and then Rome again? Or could it perhaps be that we have the five that were, the one that is, the one that is to come was the Islamic caliphate that conquered the whole world under Abu Bakr and others. And then the Antichrist will be a revived version of that empire. I believe it is biblically possible that the final showdown of history will be between the sons of Ishmael and their Mahdi and the sons of Israel and their Messiah. That's pretty cool to think about, isn't it? And I'm not even taking a firm stand on this. I believe both of these options, I don't know if I'll say equally, they're both 
biblically possible, and I think they both are persuasive in their own way, although I've given more attention to uh, the more novel idea because I think you probably have not heard it as much before. The main lesson of this is that all the empires of history are going to fall down before our Lord Jesus Christ, that his kingdom, not made by hands, will crush the final kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever and ever, and his mountain will fill the whole world, and those other empires are going to blow away like chaff in the wind. So I hope you can see, you know, there are parts of this that are pretty, pretty clear. There are parts that there's, there's pretty much a consensus, but I think there's this pesky little view over here that has an awful lot to say for it, but we know what it means in the end. So you see what I mean by all of the details are not available to us, but there's an awful lot that we can know. And I think when the day comes, it'll be very obvious. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. I like that. You stick with me, pal. Well, Daniel got the dream exactly right. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar felt? He's like, another one of these guys. All right, what was my dream? He says, you saw a great statue. He goes, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Maybe he broke out into a cold sweat and leans forward. What, is, what does this mean? Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself. He says he paid homage to Daniel. He also says he burnt incense to him and all that. Uh, this is not okay, but it is, not what was it is what was done at the time. In order to honor the God of Daniel, he honors Daniel. I think it's, it's, we don't see Daniel receiving worship here. We do see him receiving something that culturally I would be very averse to. I'll just put it that way. But let's give Daniel the benefit of the doubt here. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does not convert and begin to worship the Lord alone. A polytheistic religion can always handle one more. But I do believe as we go along, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get it right. He acknowledges, though, that Yahweh reveals mysteries. No other God could tell him what the dream was and what it meant, but this God can. This God that he thought he had conquered by bringing in all of his golden vessels into his treasury. The Lord's like, you bring me along, you're going to worship me. The Philistines learned that the hard way. And Daniel and his friends are honored. They're promoted. Daniel becomes the chief wise man of all the wise men in Babylon. And I see people that will try to criticize Daniel for this. How? Oh, are you going to be king of the magicians? We talked about this last time. They weren't all magicians. They were also scientists. They were also literary scholars. They're all, all manner of important things. And I think Daniel, by being in charge of them, would have been able to steer these things in the proper direction. That's good to know. I mean, we had some fun last week, but these, you know, these, just because somebody does not have spiritual insight does not make them a bad person. It just means that they are not given extra authority that somebody else doesn't possess when it comes to the things of God. Maybe magicians are, should be cast out of that category, but you get what I'm saying. How do you respond to the study of prophecy? This is very, very important because it's not always done well. Nebuchadnezzar got it right. So yes, I am going to tell you today to imitate Nebuchadnezzar. When you study Bible prophecy, the first response you ought to have is worship. Worship the God who is able to tell the end from the beginning. Most importantly, you honor the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.10 says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you study prophecy, it should drive you closer and closer to Jesus and make you in greater and greater awe of his Father and draw nearer and nearer to his divine Holy Spirit. If prophecy studies make you puffed up, make you full of yourself, our tribe is better than your tribe, these other idiots don't get the deep things of God like I do, you've missed it. If your study of prophecy makes it all about you, you're doing it wrong. It should cause you to fall on your knees and your face before the Lord. I've met many people now who are so into Bible prophecy, but you can't drag them to a prayer meeting. 
They have no patience with all that other stuff. They just want to know what's going to happen next. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If the prophecy doesn't lead directly to the gospel, we spend all our time talking about the next kingdom instead of the last kingdom, which is Jesus's, then we're missing it. The second response needs to be holiness. Holiness. You ought to recommit yourself to obedience and righteousness as you study the last days. Because Jesus is coming. 2 Peter 3.12 tells you that as you live a holy life, you hasten the return of the Lord. So if you want Jesus to come back faster, live righteously. I don't think we can make things come. It's what Peter said, not me. 1 John 2, 28, he says, Jesus is coming back soon. Live your life in such a way so that you don't have to shrink from him in shame when he comes. What do you want to be caught doing when the rapture happens? Think about that every once in a while. Would I want to be raptured right now? Would I really want this situation to be the one that Jesus plucks me out of and calls me home? I really want to be in this conversation. If prophecy makes you angry and bitter, and vile towards other people, as it so often does. And again, you've missed the purpose of prophecy. You're not heeding the warnings that the apostles gave you when it comes to prophecy, which is to get your soul ready. If all it does is make you angry and ranting and raving and these idiots and these stupid people, it's, what are we doing? You see that all over the place, that prophecy studies become these, these like two-minute hate from 1984 against whatever group you don't like. That is not what we do. We should want, make us want to be more holy. James says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It should humble you when you know this is coming. And third is evangelism. The knowledge of the coming of Jesus should drive you to tell everyone that you can. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, it's going to be judgment. But he has spent 2,000 years offering mercy to the world. And you can have it now. But when he comes, it'll be too late. Paul said in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, there is a fullness of Gentiles that need to be saved before Jesus comes. How would you like to be the one that leads the last person to Jesus before the rapture can happen? Amen. We don't know what the number is. We don't know any of that. We do know that Paul says there is a number that God has. The fullness of the elect and that someday somebody's going to lead somebody in the sinner's prayer, and as soon as they say amen, the trumpet's going to sound. That's pretty cool. Amen. But if prophecy studies make you isolated, I've heard this, people, they, they get into this prophecy and they say, you know what, the world's going to hell anyway, just let it happen. What? Excuse me? Is that what Jesus did? And when, when he finished talking about the end of the world, he said, you know what, what am I going to the cross for anyway? Or if it makes you vindictive, other people are messing up what Jesus. We, we want Jesus to come back, and these people are messing it up. Or people will get angry, and they'll say, these people are facilitating the rise of the Antichrist. And they get angry instead of panicked and saying, then we're running out of time. I've got to call my brother. I've got to talk to my next-door neighbor. I've got to get over there and warn people. Prophecy should make you an evangelist, a holy evangelist, a worshipful, holy evangelist. Jesus said in Matthew 24, that you do not want to be the servant working in the vineyard, that when the master comes back, he finds you yelling and beating up the other servants. We commit ourselves to being the best disciples we can be. Studying Bible prophecy ought to motivate us further in our worship and discipleship. Heed Jesus' own warning. Which is, do not let my delay cause you to become angry and vengeful and bitter and spiteful. And I, I think you all can agree. We see so much of that. That the prophecy studies are like the angriest studies you'll ever hear. Which is exactly the opposite of what they ought to be. It should be gospel-centric. That the kingdom of Jesus is going to crush the final attempt of humanity. People that say things like, oh, the Antichrist is coming. Yes, it's going to be hard, but he's only going to last seven years. And then Jesus is going to come and he's going to reign for a thousand years. And then he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and he's going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So as we looked at this, we looked at the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the four kingdoms 
that are going to succeed Babylon, starting Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then either Rome or the Islamic Empire, depending on how you interpret that. Most folks say Rome. And then a revived version of whatever the last one is going to be. Perhaps, let me just throw this out there, it's a blending of the two things. Because I, yeah, all the things I mentioned are still true. And you look at things like the European Union, they designed their headquarters to look like the Tower of Babel on purpose. And outside the European Union, they have a statue of a woman riding a beast. So if you don't want us to think <laughs> that's your future Babylon, you didn't do a good job of setting yourself up for that. So who knows? But what is the most important thing? First of all, those preliminary matters that we went over, the methodology of studying prophecy, and the response that a Christian ought to have, but also that there is a final kingdom that is Christ's kingdom. There will be that one last worldwide empire that will be the worst anybody's ever seen, but it's going to be fragile. It's going to be iron and clay, and it's going to take one push from our Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign in justice and righteousness there's so much more for us to learn in the book of Daniel, but that's the ultimate lesson. Jesus wins. That's what we know. Jesus wins. And you need to serve him now. If you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, you need to do so. He's coming back. He came as a lamb the first time to die for your sins and to offer forgiveness to you. He's offering it to you right now. You can't say that God isn't patient. It's been 2,000 years. He said, well, then he's probably not coming. No, no, no. Peter warned us about that too. He said, everybody's going to think that because Jesus took a long time to come back, he's not coming. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. But you must come and put your faith in Jesus. Bow the knee to him as king and Lord of your life. Repent from your sins. Turn and go the other way. Renounce that old life and begin a new one in Jesus Christ before the end comes.